Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of interpreting the Bible and preaching the Word throughout the seasons of the church's life. In this episode, we are led by Professor Mark Hamilton through the parts of the Bible that many churches will be reading during the fourth week after Easter 2022. Thank you for listening. Welcome this fourth in a series of podcasts spanning the season from Easter to Pentecost uh, for the year C, according to the Common Lectionary, uh, or in normal speech, the year 2022. I'm grateful for the opportunity to think with you for a few minutes on the fourth Sunday after Easter. Uh, the, The lectionary for this week presents us with four texts. Uh, Psalm 148, Acts 11, 1 through 18, Revelation 21, 1 through 6, and John 13, 31 to 35. And I, I will take them in, uh, in roughly that order. First, uh, Psalm 148. This, this psalm is a very familiar one to many of us. We grew up singing the words of this song to a rather rousing hymn. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Uh, And we got the sense from that hymn and from the words of the psalm itself that we're in the world of celebration. Actually, this is one of a series of psalms at at the end of the Psalter, Psalms 146 to 50, which form a sort of gigantic coda to the whole collection of 150 psalms. And in in this psalm, we hear uh, the invitation to join the chorus, uh, to join the heavenly band and orchestra, choir, the whole musical concert that involves not just human beings, but also the angels and the beasts and the trees and, and all living things, all the things that God has created. That, of course, is the point. This is a psalm that lives in the world of of a creation theology, the idea that God has made the world, loves the world, enjoys the diversity and beauty and fertility of the world, and invites human beings to celebrate all of that together. The psalm uh, really evokes uh, the language of the first chapter of Genesis, or the 104th psalm, as it describes some of the some of the pieces of the universe around us. Uh, It starts in a way that Genesis 1 does not start uh, with the angels, with the inhabitants of the heavenly realm, a topic about which Genesis is actually almost totally silent. Uh, And then it gets to the part that we see above us, the heavens, and then when it moves finally to the earth and the sea, it, it, it simply sketches in in a highly impressionistic way some of the most exotic parts of it, especially those parts that are beyond human control. The sea monsters, the winds, the storms, uh, the giant and beautiful trees. Uh, But we also see here the the creatures that do come under human control. Mostly, though, these are things that observe humans and are observed by humans. As we live in this giant theater that we call the created world. Uh, also, verses 11 and 12 
uh, invite human beings from all walks of life to join in this praise, whether they are powerful and important kings and rulers, or if they're young and and not yet significant, whoever is to be is to be whoever breathes is supposed to join in the praise. Uh, that psalm, I think, orients us very nicely to the rest of the readings for the week, because we hear in in the other texts the same sort of celebratory um, attitude toward the world. Uh, Christian faith is not a gloomy, dreary, uh, boxed-in, law-bound view of things, just as the religion of Israel was not those things. Uh, it's based on the, both are based on the conviction that God uh, God is at work, God is praiseworthy, human beings get to tell the truth about God, and in doing so we can celebrate the beauty of the world around us. We see that, for example, in the second text that I would take up from the Acts of the Apostles. This is uh, Acts chapter 11, which is the report that Peter makes to the, the, to the other followers of Jesus back in Jerusalem. You remember the story is in chapter 10, he had this vision. Uh, he saw all these weird animals that aren't supposed to be eaten. They're not kosher animals. And the coming down in this sheet out of heaven is a very strange thing to see, especially at lunchtime. And, uh, and then uh, the, the voice from heaven says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, well, no, I've never never eaten anything unclean. He's a, he's a, he observes kashrut. He's an observant Jew. Uh, don't call what God has cleansed unclean. But of course, the story isn't really about the end of kashrut or the non-observance of the kosher laws. Uh, Jewish followers of Jesus continued to, to observe those laws. Uh, and that, that, of course, created certain challenges in relationship to Gentiles who needn't observe those laws. But really, it's a sidebar. The real issue here is that it's not about Peter getting up and killing things and frying up bacon for breakfast. It's about going and living with the Gentiles a bit. And so Peter is told, what is told, there are some people coming to your house. At the same time Peter's having this vision, Cornelius is having a vision. He's a centurion. I, I, I sort of think he may have been retired because it says he has a family and, and as I understand it, Roman soldiers weren't allowed to marry while they were on active duty, uh, although many of them did have common law wives and families. But anyway, he's he lives in Caesarea, this beautiful city that's being built even as Acts of the Apostles is speaking, a beautiful new city started by Herod, but added on to over the next several centuries, a beautiful Roman city uh, uh, tacked down on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, the text says that Cornelius is a pious man, and so he's been praying to God, and God has heard his prayers and wants to reward him and invite him in to what's happening in Jesus Christ. So the angels uh, get these two people together and uh, Peter and Cornelius have this conversation. 
Peter says to Cornelius, I know that God is no respecter of persons. God values the piety and good intentions of all people everywhere. And he values yours, yours, Cornelius. And therefore, he is inviting you into his kingdom. Uh, it's not, you're a terrible sinner and you need to repent. It's, no, you're a pious person and God honors that and wants to give you something even better. And so with that, uh, he invites Cornelius to follow Jesus Christ. And Cornelius and his household received the Holy Spirit. Uh, because it's not just Peter's sermon that invites him, it's God inviting him. And God betokens that invitation by, the, by giving the Spirit to these people to signal to everybody, to all the early followers of Jesus, that the Gentiles are welcome into the, into the followers of Jesus, into the church. So, uh, chapter 11, without all that story as background, chapter 11 is Peter's report. Because obviously, when, when a group changes a major piece of its identity, uh, there, there are legitimate questions that have to be asked. Uh, and, it, and the people in, in Jerusalem would have been remiss not to have asked them, especially since this is the, the early Christian community is not really a cult where a single leader has complete command over everything and everybody. Uh, they're followers of Jesus Christ, not of Simon Peter, no matter how important he was. And so they haul him in for questioning. And he tells them what has happened. He reports the events and he says they received the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, and then he says something quite interesting in verse 18. They were silent as they listened. And he said, they praised God, the crowd. They praised God because God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. I think there's something very beautiful about that story. This is a community that is being told that some of its assumptions are right and some of its assumptions are wrong, or, or at least too narrow. And some of those assumptions are going to have to be changed and broadened. And instead of resisting and fighting and, and dragging their feet, they embrace that. At least in Acts chapter 11, uh, they embrace that. And they, they looked for the tokens of God's work that would demonstrate that this change was not just some weird idea that Peter had, but the legitimate move of God. Now, obviously we have to be careful about extrapolating from that story to other possible acts of inclusion. Uh, but what, but there, is, there are things that are worth noticing here, that what, what this story reports is the moment in the church's life when it began to, un, when it understood itself as carrying out the divine promises made to the prophets to bring good news to the people of Israel and to the Gentiles. The, the followers of Jesus began as a Jewish movement. Jesus was a Jew, all the apostles were Jews, all the men and women around them were Jews. They observed the, the food laws, they went to the temple, apparently they made sacrifices, and they didn't stop doing that. Because we get later in the book of Acts, Paul 
carrying out a vow in the temple, which would have involved a sacrifice, probably. So they're involved in the, life, the Jewish life as, as practicing Jews. But, but they're also including Gentiles in that life as Gentiles, not just as converts to Judaism. So that, that tension that they began to live in uh, required a lot of reflection, prayer, and thinking over a long time. It turns out, of course, that Christianity eventually became a mostly Gentile movement and that uh, many Christians uh, took on kind of the opposite of the thing they were called to do as, as Christian anti-Semitism became a real, a real cancer in the life of the church and a, a terrible blight on the church's history. But it was not so at the beginning. At the beginning, there was a sense that God is at work in Jews and in Gentiles, and maybe in slightly different ways, but but on the whole, uh, on the basis of faith and love and obedience and moral formation and all the rest. And Peter, in this story, opens up that, that possibility. Now, that possibility is there because of the grand vision of things, the end, the end game, if you will, that we see in a book like Revelation, in our third text, in Revelation 21. This is this text that the lectionary is helping us explore over the weeks between Easter and Pentecost this year, and we get just bits and pieces of it, but we get enough to get the flow. That The book of Revelation is written to churches in Asia Minor, probably end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Churches that live in prosperous cities and but have faced some persecution in the past, probably don't face it right at the moment, but know that they could face it again. But in, in any case, every day confront a sense of their own insignificance. The Christian communities are tiny. Uh, they are a small part of the overall society. And they live in tension because there are some things that the society takes for normal that they cannot be part of, and they can therefore be painted as antisocial. Uh, and so the temptation when you're in that sort of environment is to assimilate. And Revelation calls upon these people not to assimilate, not to be part of the crowd. Uh, it does that by try, by insisting that the story of which they are part is the biggest story, not the smallest. And that in, instead of seeing themselves as a tiny, tiny bit of the overall society, they should see themselves as part of the heavenly society that uh, is, is uh, staffed by a cast of thousands and, well, of millions and myriads. And so we get this business in chapter 21, this grand vision, which has been lifted from various parts of the Old Testament, from Isaiah and Ezekiel and especially in, in other places. He, uh, it's the vision of the heavenly city come down, come down upon earth. Instead of Babylon, which is uh, in, in uh, Revelation is code for Rome, the Roman Empire. Instead of Babylon, there is the holy city, the new Jerusalem which descends from heaven and is, is not, not really like the old Jerusalem. It's, it's like what the old Jerusalem aspired to be in its grandest 
language, it's, it's Eden restored as well, an urban Eden, if you will. Um, sort of gigantic cosmic central park inside a giant jewelry box, if you can let me put it that way. So we have this vision uh, and, 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 and this song that is uttered in beginning in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among human beings. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. So the herald around the throne is making this decree. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. We have this sense in the text of God as the one who renews the creation and all the things in it and who takes away evil and restores goodness. And then he said to me, I, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, that, of course, is not uh, not from the Old Testament, right? Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Anything you can put into words, I'm, I will encompass, says the one on the throne. To the one who is thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life, which reminds us, among other texts, of Isaiah 55.1, the invitation to Israel now redeemed, from Babylonian captivity to come to the throne of God and receive water and food without price, without any cost. Um, there's that sense the thirsty will receive what they need. Uh, in Revelation, of course, it's one of many images jostling for our attention in this book, but it's, it's, a, it's an obviously powerful one because here's, here's the vision, here's the vision of the person who is in desperate need. Uh, if you're thirsty for water, you're, you're not that far from death. You're desperate for water. And, the, and God says, here's water. No problem. Uh, whatever your need is, a real need, we can address it. And so there's something very beautiful and hopeful there, just as there was in Acts 11 and just as there was in Psalm 148. And then the last text we read is from the Gospel of John. And it's one of these enigmatic little texts. I, I guess that almost goes without saying in the Gospel of John. They're all a bit enigmatic. Uh, two bits, uh, John, 31, John 13, 31 through uh, 38, um, through the end of the chapter. Though the lectionary gives us 31 to 35. So we, we have... Uh, Jesus going out, this is just before the last, this is near the end of the, of the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John, the last few days. Jesus goes out and then he says, now the Son of Man has been glorified and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, and that, that is in some manuscripts and not others, but God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Now that's the part I mean that's enigmatic. What does he mean exactly? In the Gospel of John, the glorification of Jesus happens at Golgotha. It is to do with his death 
uh, and this this very counterintuitive symbol in which the cross instead of a, as well as being not instead of as well as being a symbol of horror and torture of state violence of the power that the the Roman state has over its victims instead of being as well as being that and it is that it's also a sign of God's ability to transform the most horrible things into something something better uh, then that's so that's the first bit he's going to be glorified and 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 in, and in being glorified he will glorify God because it's not just about Jesus's glory this is not a kind of ego trip he's on or a the, de the, the crucifixion is not a marketing technique for Jesus's message. <laughs> but then the, the last bit, uh, little children, I'm with you just a little longer. You will look for me. So he's going to be dead and gone. And as I said to the Jews, I say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Though he will also tell them and has already told them that where he's going, they will eventually come. Uh, and so here he's talking again about his death, that there's, you are, there is this shock of absence that's about to happen to you, folks, beware. But then he goes on, I give you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you should love one another. And when you read the Gospel of John, it, it's pretty clear that, that, Jesus in the gospel is looking not only at the disciples and other characters in front of him inside this text, but also looking at the reader. Uh, and the, this is true in all the gospels at some level, but in John it's even more explicit. The sense that um, the, the church's life is front and center in the, in the thinking of Jesus in the gospel of John. And so he's giving this commandment to the reader, to all of us, to, to the, the first readers at the end of the first century, to, to subsequent late readers, and of course to the characters inside the book who are more or less related to the actual people, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Mary, and Mary, and Mary, and Mary, and all the rest of them, uh, and including the women not named Mary. Uh, there's that sense of... Um, Jesus is concerned about how this community will live. And so there's that shock, that moment of, of, of the week of Easter when uh, the horror of the week, the danger of the week, will make it very difficult for them to love each other. And yet somehow they do. They stay together even when they don't know that the Lord is going to be raised. Even when they're in that moment of uncertainty, they are somehow still together. So they're clinging to each other in spite of everything. And that's interesting, I think. But it's also interesting to John's readers, both early on and later, because the difficulty of loving each other is, has always been great. And it was great here. You will know by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now that, that last line, of course, has become a kind of soundbite that we uh, crochet and hang on our kitchen walls and put on bumper stickers and 
and turn into warm, fuzzy sermons, but there's a lot more to it than that. This is a call to a kind of radical welcoming of one another, in spite of our differences, in spite of our frustrations, in spite of our fears, in spite of our disappointments. There is this call. Uh, it can be abused. It can be uh, an invitation to tolerate bigots and bullies, and we have to be very careful about that and about avoiding conflict because it's uncomfortable, even when it's necessary not to avoid it. So there are dangers there. But the command remains, and it is a command. It's not an option. Jesus says, I give you this command. The reason I'm commanding you is because I know it isn't easy. I know there will be times when you don't want to do it. I know there are reasons why you want to wriggle out of it, but don't. It's a command. Try harder is his answer to me and to us when it seems impossible to keep loving. So these texts for the, the, the fourth Sunday after Easter give us a sense of the hopefulness that God is welcoming more and more people into the kingdom and inviting us all to celebrate that fact as we will do together. Thank you for listening. I look forward to hearing from you. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu slash gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.